Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. My guest today is a failed accountant turned superhero. In 2012, he was laid off from his job at Deloitte. By 2019, he was starring in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, making him the first Asian superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He also appeared in season four of Selling Sunset, where Chriselle tried to sell him a house, which is arguably the real achievement. As origin stories go, it's already a good one, but it gets even more impressive when you learn that Simu Liu was born in Harbin, China, and raised by his grandparents, while his mother and father, who both survived Mao's cultural revolution, forged a life for their family in Canada. When Liu was four, his father, to all intents and purposes a stranger, turned up to take him to Ontario. Liu spoke no English and struggled to settle in. It was an early lesson in resilience, one he would never forget. Liu excelled at school, but was always drawn more towards performance, much to the consternation of his disciplinarian parents. And yet their work ethic ended up serving him well. When Liu decided to turn his hand to acting, he went to every audition, no matter how small, and hustled just as they had. At the age of 30, he was rewarded with the Marvel role that would catapult him into Hollywood stardom. His memoir, We Were Dreamers, is published next week. In it, Liu writes... The unknown is always scary, but not nearly as much as waking up one morning realising you have wasted your precious life in pursuit of someone else's idea of success. I choose the unknown every time. Simu Liu, welcome to How to Fail. It is so lovely to be here, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited to have my first actual superhero on the podcast. <laughs> we've had a Nobel Prize winner before, but we've never had a superhero. So I'm very oh excited. Well, I, <laughs> just that sentence alone is uh, I'm determined to disappoint you. Okay, well, that's great because it's so on brand. Um, for the podcast, I mean, not for you. But that segment that I read out from your book is such a beautiful passage and it's that idea that embracing the unknown, embracing risk and not being fearful can actually lead to the greater opportunity. But do you think that your early experience of the unknown that I touched on on the intro helps you embrace it? Like it's almost as if you've faced a lot of your fears already. So you don't mind taking the leap. Yeah, you know, I think it was the combination of a lot of things. And definitely, certainly, I think what you mentioned is true. The idea that, you know, not only did we make this, did I make this massive move from China to Canada at a very early age? So I, I got kind of used to the idea of, yeah, leaving everything that I knew behind. But we also moved around quite a bit in Canada. You know, I spent a couple of years in Kingston and then my family relocated to Etobicoke. Kingston is about two hours outside of Toronto. Etobicoke was more so in the city. And then eventually we kind of settled in a suburb just half an hour outside called Mississauga. So I was constantly changing schools, having to adapt to new friend groups and 
I think that part may have served me well in kind of making the decision when I was 22 years old to, to just kind of give this whole thing a, a try. And again, I can't emphasize this enough, but it wasn't like, you know, one day I get laid off from my job and then I'm suddenly like, okay, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to make it in Hollywood. Like it really just came about as it was just a, felt like a series of, of accidents almost mm. like something would happen. And then I would say, Oh, you know, I'd be like, Oh, okay. That's an interesting opportunity. I wonder if I could just take a couple of days here and, you know, try something. And it just became so infectious and so addicting that before I knew, I, I kind of surprised myself. I woke up one day and I was like, am I a full-time artist? It was like totally foreign. So do you believe in destiny? Oh, well, I mean, I've watched a lot of romantic comedies back then. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a part of me that's very destiny-oriented when it comes to true love. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tricky one. I believe in making your own luck. I believe in giving yourself permission to pursue your dreams and the power of manifestation. Not in some esoteric way in which when you speak something into the universe, it will find a way to make things happen. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think when you allow yourself the permission to speak your dreams and to state it to the world, something changes in you. And it's almost like you become more focused which is certainly the case with me. It was, it was you know, obviously not easy to admit to myself that I wanted to be an actor. I was never known to be a natural performer by any means. It's just something that captivated me endlessly. I, I loved movies from when I was young. And, and so there's just something, it did feel you know a little bit inevitable that it would pique my interest and I would be drawn to the field. But I don't know if that means it was destined. When you talk about manifestation, Twitter for you is a powerful tool of manifestation because it was a tweet that led to your role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it was also a tweet that led to your cameo on Selling Sunset, wasn't it? Tell us about that. Well, okay. I think one of those statements is more true than the other. I think definitely I manifested my, <laughs> my role. I manifested Selling Sunset through Twitter. Michelle and I had been just exchanging <laughs> tweets back and forth. And then before we knew it, the producer of the show emailed me and was like, are you serious? Are you guys being serious right now? Are you just joking around? And I was like, I am looking for a house. So I'm pretty serious if you'll have me. And they were like, great, let's do it. So that very much was a cause and effect that I can directly attribute to Twitter. The Marvel role is a little bit more complicated. And I don't think had as much to do with the tweeting as people think. It's a really nice narrative that wraps up really neatly if I'm this guy that tweets out for this role and then Marvel on the other end notices and it's like, all right, let's give this guy a shot. But in truth, nobody in any sort of decision-making capacity at Marvel or Disney ever read that tweet. At the time, got maybe like, a, I don't know, 50 likes or something. First of all, it's very facetious and tongue-in-cheek. In no way, shape, or form did I actually think that I had it chance to book this role but you know the movie had just been announced and it felt like such an empowering moment as an asian canadian actor in the in the industry you know we were coming off the heels of a movie called crazy rich asians which even though i wasn't a part of oh we'll come on to that don't you worry we'll yeah, come on we'll, to that <laughs> it, it still electrified me to my core you know i never felt like i could be the lead character in my own movie before and, and i suppose i was just kind of voicing my excitement about that but like I said, you know, I think the manifestation power had more to do with me than with external factors. I think it mm. focused me. It made me 
more hungry for that role and, and in some way, shape or form kind of pointed me in that direction. What did the tweet say? Remind us. I think it was like, hey, Marvel, are we going to talk or what? And then hashtag Shang-Chi. <laughs> I want to come back to what you mentioned there about the power of representation. But I just want to talk about your parents because I loved your book, We Were Dreamers. And you tell the story of your parents' history, which in many ways is the story of the formation of modern China. And there's this brilliant bit where at the end of chapter one, I think you say, oh, if you're not interested in that, then skip to chapter seven. I was so interested in it. Tell us about your parents because they are remarkable people like tell us who they were before they became your parents yes well oh my gosh i'm going to try to paraphrase what i think i took like 20,000 words to say in the book you know my parents they were dreamers in their own right they grew up in china at a time where going to school and getting an education was exceptionally difficult and it was around that time that my parents were in their teenage years or about that age where they were they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. Lo and behold, in 1976, there was a regime change. And suddenly the college admissions were back on, except the problem is the lineup was 10 times longer than it would have been for any year that you and I would have attended college or applied to college or university. And so my parents, through some sheer act of will and hard work, were able to receive offers to university and studied at the same university in Beijing called the Beijing Jiaotong University. And it was at that time that they met each other. They fell in love. They were studying electrical engineering together. And through that shared love of learning and of science, they bonded, hopefully other things that are a little bit more sexy, but uh, <laughs> they bonded. They, they decided to get married and then had me. During that whole time, there was this kind of whisper about opportunities popping up in the West, opportunities to study abroad, opportunities to see the world, which if you've been working in the fields for two years, like my mom, is something that you would, at one point in your life, you would have completely surrendered any ambition of. So once again, after all the work that they had put in to be able to work as engineers in China, they risked it all again to pursue a better education, a better life in the West, kind of what leads us to today. It's an incredible story, and it's one that you tell with great compassion in the book. And it also, you you don't shy away from the more difficult aspects of your upbringing and the fact that your parents had risked it all and worked so hard, and then through their perception, sort of seeing their son maybe not working as hard as they would have liked at school, that led to a really, really difficult time in your adolescence. And I, I just want to say thank you for sharing that because I'm sure it was very, very hard. And why did you want to share it? I think I remember what it was like, the feeling of isolation, total loneliness on top of everything that was happening. First of all, I was an only child, so I didn't really, I didn't have any siblings to commiserate with. I didn't have somebody with whom I could team up with to argue with my parents. Everything was always two against one in the household and I lost every time. My parents were exceptional people and they were least of all going to be defeated by a young child. It wasn't a happy ending. Our family reuniting in Canada and kind of starting this new life together. I think I wanted people to know that. I wanted people who were in the, you know, children of immigrant families who were maybe in the same position as, as me to know that they weren't alone. But I also wanted to 
right for the parents, you know, the perspective that I didn't have when I was younger. I wanted them to have some sort of compassion over what their children were going through, because even though our struggles were entirely different, and it's, I think, impossible to compare in any meaningful way, that doesn't mean that our struggles are completely invalid and trivial. The kids in my generation struggled with feelings of identity, of finding home, of finding a culture to latch onto because we were kind of in one world at home with one set of values and norms and language. And then out in the world, it would be something completely different. And, you know, navigating the two is very, very difficult for a child. I wanted to write in the hopes that families like ours that were going through the same thing would not repeat our mistakes and that children would know that they weren't alone. I mean, my heart did break for teenage Simu at several points because, you know, and I'm not saying this with any judgment, but you were beaten by your parents when you failed to get the grades. And it does sound incredibly isolating. But you wrote this book with your parents' cooperation, and I know that you interviewed them for it. So what do they think of the book? Have they read it? And what do they think more broadly of your career now, which wasn't in their dream, but is a massive dream of so many people. Right. My parents have read the book. They were instrumental in crafting the narrative, especially in those in my early years and also speaking about obviously the time in which I was not yet alive. That was the result of hours and hours of research and interviews. I think as we all have, we've grown up with kind of stories of our parents' upbringing kind of piecemeal together, but it's tough to really really visualize and put onto a timeline because all you hear are just remarks and passing. You know, my mother would say, well, when I was your age, I was working at a farm or my dad would say, yeah, you don't know what real like hardship is. And, and it's true. I didn't. And it wasn't until I sat down with them over hours and painstakingly year by year really followed the trajectory of their lives that I was able to put a timeline and a narrative together. So I think I was very proud to show them the final manuscript and they you know, for the most part, loved reading it. And it was in those crucial chapters in the middle of the book that I think they were at first a little mortified. And then after talking it out some more, they kind of understood. Because, you know, you have to realize as well in immigrant families, in so many immigrant families, we're taught to internalize our feelings and as a family as well, to keep any sort of conflict within the family, not to publicize internal strife or arguments that were happening. So, you know, the idea of like writing it all into a book was very, A, very foreign and B, very frowned upon in those circles. And so my parents, I think, initially were like, why? Why would you want to do this? And I remember being on the phone with them because I was in Sydney shooting Shang-Chi at the time. I remember being on the phone with them and being like, do you realize how many people we could help? Do you realize how many people could read our story and see themselves in what was happening? And, you know, maybe we could persuade them to take a different road. And I think that's what really got them on board because today, you know, my parents and I are incredibly close. We love each other. You know, our relationship is stronger than it's ever been. So I was like, let's tell the world the story of how we broke apart and then came back together because that's the drama and that's the incredible story. It's not some kid that grew up and got laid off and mm-hmm. tweeted his way into Marvel superstardom. It's really the story of a family. We need to be able to tell it for what it is in its authenticity. So I know they struggle to say that they love you although obviously they do, but are they proud of you? Yes, they are. As much as I joke about it sometimes, they're incredibly proud. I think in in a state of utter disbelief about what is happening to me, 
try telling a couple of immigrants who are electrical engineers that one day they were going to be on the red carpet on Hollywood Boulevard and posters with their son's face on it are going to be plastered along hundreds of feet of red carpet. It's unfathomable. And they're taking it all in stride. <laughs> Very proud. So beautiful. Let's get on to your failures. Your first failure is the one that I mentioned at the very top of this episode, getting fired from my job at Deloitte. Now, we're all so grateful that you did. But tell us, tell us that story. Tell us how you ended up as an accountant in the first place. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> oh my gosh. If I'm honest with myself, there are fields of study that maybe, you know, with a little bit of self-awareness, we could have avoided at a young age, maybe life decisions that we could have steered clear of. And I was this artistic extroverted, not detail-oriented at all kid coming out of business school, you know, recruiting for a job. First of all, I was not a top student by any means. And that meant that management consulting and investment banking and all of those sexy professions where people made a lot of money, those were immediately out of the question and out of my scope. I had to kind of just make use of what I had and do what I could. And that brought us to accounting. It was, I think, something that my parents were pushing for. Not that, you know, I was doing everything to rebel against my parents at the time. But even then, it was like, for my brain, I didn't know any other version of success. I'd never taken the time to define that for myself. And so the idea of working for a professional services firm like Deloitte was very tantalizing to me and very attractive to me because, you know, I was like, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is the next step on that path. And so I took the job. And to me, it really felt like laying down a house of cards because it was, you know, for me, it was like one fraud or one lie after another, right? I mean, the whole idea of going to business school to begin with was just like, oh, I feel like I had to do this because I was, it was the next step in the prescribed path. And so just one by one, I was just like laying down card by card and not really being intentional or purposeful about any of it. You know, I wasn't a great student in college and I certainly wasn't a good employee. You know, in fact, I remember weeks on end, I would wake up in the morning and just have to drag myself out of bed because I was so depressed. And I would remember joining this zombie walk. Everybody in Toronto who works on Bay Street would know what I'm talking about. But that walk in the beginning of the day where everyone's going to work on Bay Street, it's just like thousands of people pouring onto the streets, just caffeine addicted, bleary eyed. I was a part of it and I just hated every second of it. I was not a good employee. I made errors constantly all the time because I just wasn't a detail oriented person. And I didn't know what it was like to actually go to work and do a job that made you feel fulfilled and happy. So I just had no reference point. Do you think you were, you mentioned that you were depressed? Yes. But do you think you struggled to identify that at the time because of what you just said, because you had no frame of reference? You yeah. just thought that was life. Absolutely. Again, first of all, you know, mental health doesn't exist in a lot of immigrant households. But it's not something that's you know, normalized or talked about. Yeah, again, I didn't have any point of reference. So I just thought, okay, this is what people have to do. They do work that sometimes they hate and they make money so that they can buy things that make them happy. To a 22-year-old, that's like perfect math. That like makes sense. I was at the job for about eight months. And then I was brought into my managing partner's office one day. And I was told that I was no longer going to work at the company effective immediately. And I remember it very, very clearly because I remember walking into the office. And I remember there being, you know, it was like my partner that sat across, my boss basically that sat across from me. And then there was like two other people. There was a, a woman from HR and a security guard. 
And once they let me know that I was let go, they went through the whole, well, you have so-and-so amount of time to go and get your things. We'll escort you down to the floor. Deloitte's offices were entirely open concept. So basically the entire company saw me walking onto the floor, shoulders slumped down with the lady from HR and the security guard escorting me and watched as I collected my things. And I could just remember the deafening silence as that was happening. Not a single person looked up to acknowledge, you know, what was going on. I think they were all aware, but just so, you know, it was obviously an awkward situation. They were just so dead set on not noticing me. And so nobody made eye contact with me. Nobody said a word. I just in complete deafening silence collected my things and went home. And at the time I was devastated. I, mean, I was like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. You know, this house of cards that I was laying out had finally collapsed. And I remember just thinking about all that my parents had invested in me, their whole journey on top of all of the time and money that they invested into my education. I felt like a tremendous failure. And then I woke up the next morning and I felt better. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to trivialize how dark that must have been for you. And I'm also so in awe of your resilience, of that kind of tiggerish ability to bounce back. Because what you did do after that was you lent into that tiny glimmer of passion you had for performing and acting. And you worked so hard as a jobbing actor. And I think this is really important for people to hear that actually you weren't this overnight success. You put in the hours. Tell us about that, just about how hard you worked to make your name. The incredible thing, Elizabeth, is that it didn't feel like it was hard work. At the time, I felt like I was working a lot less than I had ever done as an accountant. When you're grinding away at that job that you hate and every single keystroke and every second at the office is work, like you feel like you're working so hard. Yeah. And of course, having very little output and to very little results. But when I like checked Craigslist for the first time and I set foot on a movie set, it just electrified me. Every single neuron in my body just fired up. And I feel like I changed fundamentally in, a, in just such a profound way. I was never known to be a hard worker in school. I was never known to be the keen one. I was always the guy that was trying to get by with the minimum amount of effort. And I found that in this world of acting and performance and artistry, I woke up every day just so excited to get to work. And so it just felt like this whole different new version of me was emerging and coming out of the shell of this perpetual slacker. And so I was like, I owe it to myself. I have to keep going because I don't know if I'm ever going to find anything like this again, where I'm just so engaged. And I think that's why, you know, when, when you're in a position where you're engaged and you're purposeful and you're pursuing something that you're passionate about every day, just feels good. I don't mean to say that we don't have hard days at work, but you wake up with a sense of purpose and knowing that you are where you are meant to be in life. Mm. I guess that does mean I believe in destiny to some degree. Well, I think you can believe in both. I think you can believe in ultimate destiny, but as you say, you can also believe in working hard to make your own luck. And, and one of my favorite anecdotes from this period of your life is when you took your accountancy and business school skills and you put them to use by producing a kind of pitch document for yourself where you predicted your investment on return. Have I got that right? As an actor. 
yeah, it was, first of all, in business school, we would do these like case studies all the time. And often we'd be asked to like write up the business plans. And so, yeah, when I was first making contact with my manager, Chris in, in LA, who's now still my manager to this day, but this was like all the way back in 2014 and nobody knew who I was. I was like, well, I have to think of myself as an entrepreneur. I have to think of myself as someone who is selling his wares. And so I did, I put together this kind of like pamphlet, like a brochure, had all my headshots and my resume. Yeah. It was just like a business plan of like, why should you, it's brilliant. why should you represent <laughs> Simu Liu? I guess you're right. And in, in a lot of ways, it was like a return on investment. It was a business plan, basically. Hey guys, it's Cheyenne Davis. You may know me from MTV's Teen Mom OG or Think Loud Crew podcast. I'm here with my dad, Papa Floyd, to tell you about our new podcast, Unfiltered Kitchen. The kitchen is the hub of the household for many of us. The one-stop shop for conversations both big and small. Cheyenne and I have been having open conversations about all aspects of life in our kitchen since well before she was able to see over the counter. And now we're inviting you into our own kitchen as a part of the family. Unfiltered Kitchen is a two-way street. I share my advice on cocktails, cooking, parenting, and the lessons I've learned. And I inform my dad what it's like to raise kids today, how generational barriers affect us, and the joys of being a daughter. Well, your daughter. Get ready for a whole lot of unfiltered advice. You can take it or leave it, but you're never going to leave this table feeling hungry for more. Listen to Unfiltered Kitchen wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. So that accountancy job that you were laid off from, do you think you would ever have quit it yourself? That's tough. I don't think so because it was very all-encompassing. A nine-to-five is underselling how much work working in public accounting is especially during the busy season. So I think it would have allowed for very little time for me to pursue anything mm. like acting. I had done the one gig for Pacific Rim and I had to skip work to do it and you know, nearly lost my job right then and there. And then of course I did shortly after. You were an extra in Pacific Rim, weren't you? Exactly. You and your yes. friend, Jason, yeah. Yes, me and my friend, Jason, who's actually sleeping. In the oh, is he? Right over there, visiting me in London right now. But, um, Hi, Jason. But, Sorry yeah. to interrupt your sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's doing okay. He's a deep sleeper. But to have the courage to leave a job, I think you need some sort of validation of success in your other field, your side hustle, I guess you could call it. I just don't think I would have gotten there, you know? And so really, truly, I think they did me a favor. It's the best thing that ever, uh, clearly the best thing ever. I think that it is so important for people to hear that sometimes when a job ends, 
you will end up being grateful for that. And you can apply that to so many relationships that even if you're heartbroken or devastated or humiliated at the time, it turns out quite often to open up more opportunities. So thank you so much. I mean, we can't all be... Of course. Yeah, I just think about these moments of like these perceived rock bottom moments. And really, you could think of them as devastating, but you can also think of them as opportunities. You know, and I remember this is one of my favorite passages in the book that I wrote. But it was like out of the ashes of this life that for all intents and purposes, I didn't want, I could now build from the ground up a life that I did want, something that was uniquely mine and wasn't in service of my parents' expectations of me or their definition of success. It was really like I needed all of that to kind of crash and burn before I had the courage to, I guess, build up something on my own. Thank you, Simu. Your second failure is getting your heart broken. By your college sweetheart. <laughs> yes, my heart was broken. Okay. I, as a young graduate from college, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me at the time. And I was just a crippling mess, crying in parking lots. And it was not a good time. So this was after you'd graduated from business school? Yes. I had a girlfriend that was a little bit younger than me. So she was still in school. I remember I was, it was September. So the year was about to start. And I, and I remember I got in a car and I drove two hours out to London, Ontario, not the UK, London, Ontario, it's a much smaller city. And I was like so excited to see her. And then I remember getting to her door and knocking. And then when she opened the door, it was like, there was a look on her face. It was like the fire had just gone and I could tell. And tried to kind of power through it as we always do. I think when we, when we feel these things, we're like, oftentimes we're just in denial. So we just think, okay, maybe if I just try really, really hard, I can I can save this thing. But that lasted all of about 18 minutes. And, you know, eventually she was like, I'm confused about the way I feel about you. And then it happened. And then we broke up. And at the time I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. I was angry. And I, I was like, fine, fine. I'm done. And I left not thinking I don't need closure. I don't need anything like that. I just, I didn't need help. What actually happened was I became like very, very depressed for a very long period of time. I had no closure. And I tried to kind of get back into contact with her. I tried to get some sort of closure. And of course, we were two hours away. So it was hard to meet in person. And I had started working at Deloitte at this time. So I knew that she was coming back for the Christmas break. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get her a Christmas present and surprise her at her place. And hopefully we'll get to talk some of this out. And of course, a part of me was like, I'm still in love with her. I want to, you know, I want to get her back. And all those toxic male things that we think Mm. about when we watch too many romantic comedies and we think that we can just make people love us, you know? So I drove to her house and I had my Christmas present with me. And I remember like knocking on the door and nobody's home. So I'm like, okay, I just go back into my car and I'm like trying to think about what to do next. Maybe I'll go home. And literally like five minutes passed. And then she pulls up in the driveway. Like she's with her mom. It's her family house. We're 20 years old. And she clocked me. And I just remember the look on her face then was like just absolute terror. It was like in that moment, I saw what I was to her, this unwelcome guest. And that froze me and shook me to my core. I just felt awful awful and so low in that moment (laughs) i can feel it i can feel like how powerful the emotions were i can feel that through the screen oh thank you the big lesson i think that i took out of it i can't stress enough like when your internalization and conception of romance is informed by these romantic comedies and things that aren't real you start to think really dangerous things like if somebody doesn't feel 
about me the way that I want them to, I can make them feel that way. If I'm going to make a grand gesture and that should in some way entitle me to a sort of reaction, I think it was that dissonance from reality that kind of led me to do what I did. And uh, yeah, of course, you know, it was completely innocent at the time. And, you know, I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong, but that look on her face just told me everything that I needed to know. So obviously for a lot of reasons, I was, I think, suffering from some form of depression, but I think it really forced me to take a long, hard look at the person, the man that I wanted to be and how I had to behave in relationships moving forward. Wow. I mean, there's no grief like heartbreak. There really isn't. It's a very peculiar and specific kind of feeling. Are you in a relationship now? I wouldn't normally ask that question, but because of what we've been talking about, like, have you been able to take those lessons and apply Mm. them to future relationships in a way that feels healthy? Well, I can say I was in relationships kind of all throughout my 20s and they've been you know, incredible experiences, uh, you know, that have since come to an end, but ones that I'm incredibly grateful for because they've continued to teach me so much about, about myself and about the kind of partner, first of all, the kind of partner that I want or that I feel like I'm compatible with, but also, you know, it's taught me so much about the kind of partner that I want to be. It's been a lot of work to, I guess, continue to deconstruct those like toxic male things. And the example that I gave is just like one of them, but there's other like just like little things when you're living with someone for the first time and you're living with a woman for the first time and you have to deal with, I don't know why I'm thinking of this example. I really don't. But when you, when you have to deal with like minstrel stuff in the beginning, it's like every guy is like, Oh, like, Oh, gross. Get that. You know? And it's through these, honestly, it was like through these relationships that I was like, Oh my God. Like, first of all, this is the thing that affects every single woman on earth. So you can't be grossed out at it. And second, like it's a bitch to go through. And so, you know, I'm I'm, I'm there like watching <laughs> my partners go through it and I'm feeling like, okay, so you're pre-menstrual for like a week and then you're menstruating for a week and then you're post like, I'm like, so when are you not feeling like crap? And, you know, she was like, well, well, between Tuesday and Thursday, like the first Tuesday <laughs> and Thursday of the month or something I'm like, wow, that's, that's just crazy. So I think it's, it's just taught me to be more empathetic rather than just being like, <laughs> I don't know, just like a dumb dude. It's so interesting because I really want to ask you about representation on screen, which we'll come on to, but obviously so many women have been marginalized by the predominant male gaze to the extent that we don't often see menstruation on screen, but we see a shed load of blood that is attached to male violence and that's okay. And in the same way, you suffered from the white gaze, the fact that there, you know, when you were growing up, there weren't representations of Asian brilliance and superherodom on screen in the way that you might have liked. And it's really interesting to me that those journeys for you and for me, they're kind of parallel, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never menstruated in my life, but yes. In, 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 That's that, going to be my scoop from this when interview. You conceptualize <laughs> it that way, yes, it does, it does feel very parallel. And by the way, Asian women, I think, suffer, I would say, the most from this predominantly white, predominantly male gaze because they're fetishized, they're exoticized into objects of desire more than being treated as human beings. And every single one of my Asian female friends can attest to, to having felt like a fetish at some point in their lives that's very much prevalent in its duality. But also, yeah, for me separately, growing up as an Asian man, I definitely felt that. First of all, there was just a representational issue. Like there was just a lack of it. So when I turned on the TV, I just never saw any sort of aspirational model of what I could grow up to be apart from Bruce Lee, the Jackie Chan. 
of course, but those were different still than my background and my upbringing because they were from the East. They had grown up in the East. They rarely spoke English. They were fish out of water. Whereas for me, I, I felt like even though I could relate to the face on a superficial level, there was nothing about the characters or the people themselves that I could like really grab onto. And then, you know, I think as an Asian man, it's like the media has a way of emasculating us and portraying us as these kind of like, oftentimes we're not seen as desirable. We're, you know, nerdy or we're, you know, the sidekick. We just don't have, you know, I guess what the kids call that main character energy. And I think that had a profound impact on the self-confidence of a lot of Asian men growing up around my generation. So it was tough, you know, I basically grew up thinking, oh, I'm on the bottom of, I didn't know what, but some sort of hierarchy. I was like, I'm, you know, I never thought of myself as desirable. Not that you should think of yourself as desirable all the time, but it wasn't even a possibility for me. We're going to get on to your crazy rich Asian story, which is your third failure. Failure number three. I know. I love it. I'm so happy you've chosen this. Like you really, really have chosen excellent failures. They're not humble brags. They are genuine failures. But I wanted to ask whether you'd experienced racism or stereotyping within the industry that you now find yourself in? Yeah, I think, you know, what I experienced was just a product of the system, right? That was in place at that time. I started auditioning in 2012, so 10 years ago. And at that time, writers' rooms looked very, very different. Casting offices looked very, very different. The decision makers who worked at major networks and movie studios were very, very different. And so that white gaze that we spoke about, or the predominantly white male gaze, that was the gaze. That was the only gaze. And so the parts that existed for people of color and certainly for Asian people like myself were stereotyped, were these kind of dumbed down, watered down, untrue, inauthentic versions of ourselves. Because an Asian person had not written them. At worst, we were just auxiliary characters. I played desk cop number one, bartender number three, or paramedic number four for the first two and a half years of my career. At its best, it's like these characters that have names and and feel like they should be three-dimensional, but they weren't constructed with any sort of real cultural sensitivity. And so they were just like facsimiles of Asian people. So we saw that quite a bit on screen. And so that was the system that we all kind of came up in people in generations prior to me and and also for myself. And it wasn't until later on that those conversations about diversity started to really come out to the fore and things started to shift meaningfully in the industry. And and Crazy Rich Asians was one of the first times that that happened at the major Hollywood studio level. It was, you know, I think the first studio film with a predominantly Asian cast in 25 years before Joy Luck Club in the early 90s. I mean, it was an extraordinary film. I don't want to rub it in, but um, it really did. It felt so kinetic to watch it. And your third failure is not getting cast in that movie. So tell us what happened. So the background is I was starting to come out to LA, which in itself was a massive risk. In 2017 or early 2016, there was kind of rumblings in the community that there was going to be a Crazy Rich Asians movie. And I, being Asian, was very, very excited. I was like, look, if there's one shot that I have, it's going to be Crazy Rich Asians. Like, how often are we going to see these movies? They're just not going to fall off of a tree. And if I can't get on Crazy Rich Asians, I think that might be it for me because this is my one window. And I remember going to my first audition and getting really positive feedback. So, you know, as an actor, you just like 
when you're strung along, you're like so hopeful. And they're like, great. Well, you know, we, we just found our lead, this, this incredibly handsome man by the name of Henry Golding. But maybe you could read for the best friend for Colin. And I was like, okay, no problem. And I, I sent in a tape for Colin. And then they're like, okay, great, great. No, really, really good. We found our Colin. But maybe you could play one of the other guys who's the husband of Astrid. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. And I put that on tape and they're like, okay, great. We love it. You know, it was just that constant navigation. I think by the end, I must have auditioned for that movie like four times. And then at the very end, they're like, oh, sorry, we found all of our parts and it's not going to go away. And I just remember being devastated at the time. You know, I was putting so much on the line coming out to LA. And I think I kind of expected things to happen faster than they actually did. And so all is lost moment for me was a tough reckoning because I feel like I'd already come so far and I wanted so badly to succeed. I just, I didn't know if anything else was going to come, if anything else was going to be around the corner. I'm very, very happy and proud of the success of, of that movie. I, when it came out, there was no feel, and usually there are, believe me, but there was no feeling of like jealousy on my part. I was just, I was truly, truly so happy that it existed. And when you failed to get the part, didn't you get some feedback that was fed back from the director via your agent that yes, really yeah. stuck I with mean, you? I, I think because the director, John Chu, and I are, are now, I would say we're pretty good friends today. So I remember distinctly, I was like asking my agent, I was like, well, why, you know, my manager, my agent was like, why did this happen? What could I have done? Why any sort of feedback whatsoever? Because I felt like everything was good. I kept getting, you know, positive notes and just tell me what it was. And through some sort of broken telephone, whether it had gone through a studio exec or a casting director before it got to our side, we got, well, Simu doesn't have the X factor or the it factor. And that was just such a crushing blow for me because I, again, I felt like I had already worked so hard and I come so far and I trained as an actor and taken countless hours of class. It's like, what is the if factor? Like, it just felt like someone was telling me that I just wasn't good enough. I wasn't likable. I didn't have that thing that made people want to watch me. So I think it was at a time where it was very difficult for me. I was trying to figure out whether I could be the lead character or whether I could only be a supporting character for my entire career. And I, it was, yeah, it was tough, but I'm so grateful, even though John is, is very adamant that he never said that. And I was I about to say, that. yeah, he said he didn't say it. So <laughs> Yeah. But I'm so grateful to have heard it because I feel like it really it forced me to kind of take a step back and realize maybe I, this is going to sound weird, but maybe I wanted it too badly. Like maybe I was too desperate. And that desperation was showing in my work. There had to be an element of confidence to what I was doing, of self-assuredness. You know, I had to trust that I was talented and I was watchable and I was, yeah, I was, I was good. So I think it changed the way that I approached my work after getting that piece of feedback that John never actually gave me. I mean, as you can see, like in the later years, I really started to work a lot more. I need to let you go, but before I do, tell us a bit about Barbie, because you're shooting that at the moment, aren't you? The Greta Gerwig-directed yes. version of Barbie, which I'm so excited about. How's it going? It's unfairly fun, you know, <laughs> especially because the way that these movies go is that you shoot hours and hours and hours of footage, and we can only show an audience about 120 minutes, you know, before they start getting bored and demanding to leave. So in effect, like, we're having... 20 times the fun that the audience will experience when they see this movie. And it really is such, such a joy to go into work every day. I think Warner Brothers actually just released an image. So I can kind of at least talk about that in some way, shape or form, but it's very pink. 
there's a lot of pink, <laughs> which is honestly just kind of a lot of fun to, to come to work every day, right? And there's been multiple times on this production that we've kind of looked at each other, whether it's like cast or crew or even Greta and been like, how are we getting paid to do this? This is insane, which I think is always a good sign. Every day feels like we're just going to play. And I can't wait for people to see it because rightfully, I think a lot of people are confused about what this movie is. And I wouldn't want to spoil the fun by revealing it. its best experience with no expectation whatsoever. Final question. Have you bought a house in LA, even though you didn't buy one through Chrishell on Setting Sunset? <laughs> I have. I've settled down in LA. Was it through the Oppenheim group that you bought you know, it? <laughs> It, it wasn't with the Oppenheim group. We worked together briefly for the run of that episode, but then I figured, I was like, you guys are probably pretty busy shooting this show. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And, and they were, of course, just so wonderful about all of it. And Chrishell is a great friend of mine to this day. But I am very happy with the house that we did find. And yeah, I did recently. If you've seen the episode, you'll know that I asked for a house with a basketball court, which of course in the Hollywood Hills is impossible. But I did recently just put up my basketball net. So I have a nice driveway with a, hopefully a three-point line painted in at some point. I'm so happy for you. And <laughs> I really am. And I can't thank you enough, Simu, for coming on this podcast because I firmly believe that true success can only come as a result of knowing yourself. And that only comes as a result of learning from failures and mistakes and all of this just makes you into an even bigger superhero in my eyes. And I'm just so grateful for your honesty and your emotional articulacy. Thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. Oh my goodness, my pleasure, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.